we've always been really focused on education and distilling what can be like really complex scientific verbiage to somewhat like layman's terms so that people can digest it and understand how best to apply that in their lives. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields. With me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Kate Miller, co-founder and CEO of Miss Grass. Kate, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Great. How about you guys? I'm doing really well. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk about Kate, Kate's brand. Really excited to learn more about her East Coast love, but more excited to know that she did spend a lot of time out here on the West Coast. So... Um, how are you doing today, Brian? Yeah, I, I just wanted to to clarify that like uh, it's not East Coast love. She's got East Coast roots. She's from the East Coast and currently lives on the East Coast and maybe ventured out to the West Coast uh, to learn some stuff about cannabis that she's bringing back to the East Coast. So, just so the, you're saying that the West Coast is providing some information for the East Coast? Is that what yeah, I heard? I think that? that's fair. That everyone got started first. So, Kate, I think we'll just get let you clarify for the record a little East Coast West Coast <laughs> battle. Where would you say you currently reside? So on the record, I live in New York and I'm a Jersey girl and I rep Jersey till I die. I am an East Coaster, but I did have an 11 year stint. It was broken up with five years in New York, but I had an 11 year stint in Southern California in Los Angeles, four of which were college. So um, I think they'll count, but that's fair. fair. Let, Let the record reflect. So Kate, before we dive in, can you give our listeners a little background about yourself and then kind of the approach you took to building this grass, which I know is a little un- little more unconventional than some of the other brands out in the space? Yeah. So background on myself, as I mentioned, born and raised Jersey girl, personally have always loved weed from the second blunt I ever smoked. And the rest has been history since then. I've always been around it. My brother sold it and ultimately got arrested for doing so. But fast forward, moved out to attend university in Los Angeles. California had a medical cannabis program at the time. Personally loved weed, walked into a dispensary my first time. And I was like blown away with lollipops and all the different strain options. And just, it was, you know, kid in the candy shop the first time. Um, But also I've always been super entrepreneurial finding, you know, areas where I felt there were voids to build businesses around or little side hustles. And ultimately that's what missed. That's what cannabis was for me at the beginning. Landed up working as a medical bud tender my junior and senior year of college in 2007, 2008 in the Medical Cannabis California program. Planted the seed then, bought mistgrass.com on GoDaddy um, in 2008. Ultimately sat on it for over a decade before it launched. But I was one of those like would get high with my girlfriend and come up with business ideas and immediately go to GoDaddy to secure the URL which I have no idea why I thought that was like, oh, you have a business if you have the URL. But yeah, ultimately launched it a decade later, had a stint, you know, a decade long career in the in the entertainment industry. I was living in New York at the time. California was had just voted or was about to vote for adult use cannabis. So started looking back into the space. And I've always been a brand building um, gal and, and loving the idea and Um, just the value of what really valuable brand IP can create and ultimately you can monetize around. Um, And that's what Miss Grass was for us, a brand building exercise. And I think to your question, like we took a bit of a a different approach than a lot of other brands in this space who launch product and then ultimately turn their attention to building community, which 
especially in this space, is a challenging approach given the state-by-state-by-state framework that is cannabis. Uh, For us, we launched as an online community platform, which allowed us to scale a nationwide and even global community first. We have customers who purchase things on our e-com site, all federally legal, in all 50 states. Um, And we did that focusing on building and scaling a community for close to the first three years of the business before we ultimately launched our first product. So from day one of having product on the shelves, we already had a a 90,000 plus email subscriber base, uh, you know, close to an 80,000 at the time uh, social following. Um, So we had people from like day one show up and knew about our brand and, you know, already had the brand loyalty. Did you always have the idea to kind of start the community and then launch a cannabis brand? Or was that kind of uh, created during the early stages when you guys were building the community and getting feedback from the community members? Yeah, it was in our very, very first, kind of business overview of create a community. It kind of, we took a page out of Glossier's book. If you know that beauty brand that started with an online media platform, scaled community, collected a ton of first party data, and then used that to ultimately inform what became their first product. Um, So the approach is not unique to us by any means. There's many brands beyond just Glossier who has taken that approach. That being said, I thought we would have the first product within year one of this this business. Um, I think one first-time entrepreneurial entrepreneur, so underestimated the time it takes to get traction and scale, as well as definitely underestimated how long it would take for the cannabis industry to evolve. So yeah, it took us about two and a half, close to three years before we launched our first product. As someone who's gotten high and purchased many GoDaddy domains before, I got to know, were there other domains that you had purchased and other concepts you'd kicked around? And did you apply any of those earlier on in thinking, hey, this venture one, this venture two, these are all things? Or did ultimately you go, you knew right away, Miss Grass was it. And that was the informational platform you wanted to start to build the community. Great question. I had close to 30 GoDaddy domains and none have seen the light of day except for Miss Grass. I now no longer pay for the annual subscriptions of all of them. <laughs> like a couple of years ago, I cleaned slate, but um, no, they, you know, none were in the cannabis space. Like they would be, you know, some were funny domains. Miss um, Grass was really one. And to be honest, when I purchased it, when I was working um, as a bud tender, I, I didn't fully conceptualize what ultimately it would become, um, but it was more around, I felt there was a void and a need for a brand that authentically represented myself and the many people in my life that were consuming cannabis more consciously than it was being portrayed in the dispensary that I worked at and in pop culture at the time, which obviously leaned really heavily into that like stoner bro, lazy stigma that we you know are all familiar with. So that was kind of it. I just didn't think there was a brand. Um, there wasn't anyone leading on the education side. So it kind of planted the seed. And then a decade later, started looking back into it when I could justify ultimately like devoting my life and career to it because of, you know, cannabis reform started to sweep our nation. And I felt like it was the perfect time, you know, intersection with my passion and the business opportunity. I love it. And building the traction with the 90,000 email subs is, is not a, it's not an easy thing to accomplish. That is a very hard feat. And one, especially in our niche, incredibly, incredibly uh, impressive. So what was the value you were providing to people in order to to subscribe to the email and then 
obviously there had to been a certain number in your mind where you realized, okay, I found something here and this is definitely a, a, a group or a niche that we can target. So take us through that process. Cause I think the earlier on details are ones where some people are listening to these podcasts. They have these ideas, but they don't know how to start. And obviously you, you started and then built up something and then something clicked in your mind where you're like, okay, this is a serious amount of people very interested in this niche. Yeah. So from day one, what the product we had was, was our online magazine. So from day one, and we still have it, we have over 2000 pieces of editorial content that has been written, many of which are education led. And I should say that, you know, it was somewhat luck that we were like ready to launch at a time that cannabis had a lot of mojo and momentum. And there was a lot of press writing about it because we launched January of 2018. January 2018 was when California went adult use. So, and I hate to say that this worked in our favor. It was also at the height of the Me Too movement. So we were two female founders in cannabis. There was a ton of media writing about it at that time. So when we launched, immediately we got a lot of great momentum from press. And it was just, yeah, right place, right time. From the month one, we had so many users that were driven to our site. It was also kind of like the height of or, or starting to be the height of the CBD craze that happened where CBD was put in every single product, including like leggings, CBD leggings were pitched to us one, one time. So it was the right place, right time. A lot of people were driven to our website. They were very either new or for the first time ever had access to educational material on cannabis so they can like get good at weed. And we had, you know, similar to a lot of sites that you see like email capture everywhere that we could from our online magazine to we did a ton of events at that time, still do a ton of events and partnerships. Um, But early days, we did events with Beats by Dre and Aloe Yoga and Lululemon and Soho houses around the country, which was also a a great way to capture and scale our email newsletter list. Yeah, I think that's uh, so powerfully said. And I think one of the things that that helped those conversion rates is that the, the messaging and the imagery on your website extremely clear of who the target audience is. It it communicates once you show up, you know exactly you feel home and you feel comfortable that like, this is a spot for me. And I want to take us through the steps of the branding aspects and knowing like, like you said, like I went to a dispensary, I knew there wasn't any products category for someone like myself. And then I built around that concept so that someone like myself could find a safe haven or an opportunity to connect when that product, when they saw it. So take us through the branding and then the iterations that came to where you are today. Yeah, it, I'll emphasize the word iterations there because it, that's exactly what it was. It, it has evolved. What the brand identity looked like from day one is not what it looks like today. What you see today is actually um, something that we launched probably about two years ago. And we finally, for the first time in the you know close to six-year journey of Miss Grass, brought on a head of creative in-house. Prior to that, from the visual perspective, we've always owned voice in-house, meaning like our written word, how we sound and what we report on and all of that was done in-house. And my business partner, Anna Duckworth, who started the brand with me, is ultimately the person who created the brand voice. But we always outsourced design. So from managing freelance graphic designers to working with creative agencies that like built the first you know, brand identity system for Miss Grass. Um, but today we brought that person in house. Her name is Priyanka Pulajol, and she has created the visual world that is Miss Grass that you see um, across all of our brand touch points. And 
so much thought and attention has gone into it. I had no idea what really goes into creating a brand world down to, you know, she used like color psychology to decide the color of our fast times boxes, because ultimately the energy of that, like inspires this like uplifting creative effect. And that is what ultimately the high is. So really, really intentional and thought out. And, and that launched about two years ago. You could feel that. And I think that's the, the, the most impressive part. And as a marketer myself, like being on the side and looking at the different products, some other companies you see, they, they send it off to an agency, but there's no real feel behind that. And yours is very, very clearly and very well done, which I think is, is part of the reason people can gravitate so easily towards it. You see it and you know, right away, this is something that connects with me and speaks to me. So fast, quiet, all half, all times, intentional. <laughs> all the times in your life that you need it. So take us through the idea behind that and the intention behind it. Yeah. I mean, it started with, you know, when we, when we started developing our first product, which were the Mistgrass minis that you probably are looking on our site on your other screen over there, you know, first of all, that was like very much informed by our community. So to give you an example of like one data capture point is, we were developing product. We sent out a, a Google survey to our email subscriber list. Overnight, 7,000 people responded and answered things from, you know, what's obviously their, their preferred method of consumption to even like down more granular to like when are the specific moments throughout the day that they're consuming and what is the, the need for that down to, um, you know, the percentage of our community that would smoke a joint but never get through a full one gram, which ultimately informed the mini sizes of it. Um, so that's just one example of like, a, you know, how we leveraged our first party data to inform ultimately the product that we that we came out with. And also, as we were, you know, looking at first party data, as well as market data, as well as just knowing things like, you know, sativa indica and hybrid being very antiquated, you know, naming uh, nomenclature and so many people being like, I don't know, I smoked an indica and it just like, I was fucking wired, you know? And it's like, well, did you really look at like the turf profile of that and blah, blah, blah. So we wanted to create something that ultimately consumers would know when I'm reaching for the fast times, what they should feel, which ultimately our fast times is our sativa while also kind of like being true and authentic to what it what it is. And we're really focused on turf profiles. So our fast times, um, a lot of times we'll actually blend two strains together to get a consistent turp profile for our fast times. It was something that we tried to solve for when consumers were telling us, hey, like I go and sometimes I get a super silver haze and the next time I get it and it feels totally different. And for us, we wanted to create a consistent experience from batch to batch, production to production to state to state. So that was our approach, not only with the the naming of the fast times, quiet times, all times and half times, but also with ultimately what product is going into that. Is there ever like a balancing act of taking these, like the survey data and all this information and it's suggesting that consumers want X, but you're like, hey, I kind of like Y more personally. Like how do you balance like your personal preferences with kind of what the survey data has been describing to you guys? It's a great question. And to answer it with a real life experience is right now we're R&Ding an edible and we did a similar thing in the consumer data hours and also market data shows gummy, 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 gummy. My favorite thing is a gummy, 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 which ultimately like 
it's a question of, do you like a gummy the most? Because that's what exists. Like everyone has a gummy, but also wearing our business hat, we were like, we don't want to enter a space that is extremely saturated. And there's already, you know, a handful of brands that I think have owned the majority of that pie. So yeah, that's an example of the data was very much uh, steering us one way, but we decided to go a different way. Could it possibly be that people are anti-smoking potentially, and they're looking for an alternative way of consuming? Could that potentially be like the the intention, like, was it just edibles or were there additional options for them to choose on the form? Yeah, sorry. That specific survey was like a deep dive on an edible. So we already like filtered for an edible and then it was like that. Overall, our community, their preferred method, number one is a pre-roll and then a close second is an edible. So what are you seeing as the, the biggest questions or the biggest hurdles for women specifically to adopt cannabis into their life? It's a good question. You know, there's obviously women make up the fastest growing um, demographic in all legal states. Um, We are already a major consumer base. Um, And looking at other industries, we know, you know, women, you know, purchase like 80% of households um, items that all things point to like, win the woman category, and like, you're going to be a really successful company. Um, I think, Canada specifically, and just like some first party data that we have, we do have a lot of um, women in our community that don't, to your point before, smoke something. They don't like, you know, smoking anything to put it in their lungs. You know, some are mothers and it's not as like, you know, it's it's you you have the smell. It's not as um, discreet as taking an edible. Um, So I think with legalization and the opportunity for not just women, but for all consumers to go into a legal store and have a, a options for the first time, like that is normalizing, that is bringing new consumers into this market. Um, so that's definitely one thing. And then I would say the educational side of it. So many people, even yesterday, I was at a, at a conference that was not a cannabis conference, which is a very a rare day for me not to not to be all in on cannabis. But it was really interesting because all of these founders and investors and whatnot were outside of the space. And a lot of them were like, oh, yeah, I I don't consume cannabis. It freaks me out when I do. I have so much anxiety, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, what were you consuming? And they're like, I don't know. Like, Someone just gave me like a chocolate. And I'm like, well, you know, so the educational piece is just so important to equip consumers with that so that they can be informed. They know what to look for. They know how to read a label. They know what the right dose is for them to ultimately like help them get good at weed and women, especially of like really being able to um, specifically choose the product that will suit their specific needs. What are some of the like prerequisites that you guys have in place when you are trying to communicate like an educational piece directly to like a woman consumer? Is there certain like guidelines that you guys try to follow in terms of like the tone and the message that gets communicated from an educational standpoint? Or is it just kind of like a a one size fits all blanket and I'm overanalyzing that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, we are not only for women. The majority of our consumer base are women on our brand channels. Women are 76% of our community on Instagram and on, on our overall like email subscriber list. However, we do know in store, like who's purchasing our products, that is not as weighted 
I mean, it is majority of women, but it's not as weighted as much. Our voice, it kind of goes back to, and and the educational stuff that we put out goes back to like our brand identity and like what we represent, what our voice is, how we speak. We've always been really focused on education and distilling what can be like really complex scientific verbiage to somewhat like layman's terms so that people can digest it and understand how best to apply that in their lives. Is part of the combination, the the terpene rich, I want to go back to that because I think that's that's very important and part of the, the continuity aspect of someone picking up the product each time and feeling that feeling, which I think helps that same customer who said, I've had one experience, I didn't like it, I don't want to have that again. So A, how did you come up with the terpene rich formula? How hard is that actually? And then B, how do you communicate that to someone who doesn't understand all the aspects of cannabis and what might influence one or the other? Yeah, the latter question is is one we're still trying to figure out and ultimately how much we should be, you know, sharing that rather than kind of just, you know, when you're grabbing the fast times, I feel the same thing. Like, does every consumer care or need to know the like specific breakdown of every single chirping? Like probably not, but there's a large consumer base that does really care about that and also knows about that. So looks for that. For us, the terp profiles that we look for were, you know, a little bit of like trial and error of like our own team of like trying things out as well as we have a a chief scientific advisor. Her name is Amanda Ryman. Do you know her? Yes. We had her on. We've had her on. Yeah. Oh, perfect. So we work very closely with Amanda um, on the kind of scientific side of things. So she very much helps to inform the chirp profiles. So yeah, a, a little bit of everything. And then down to from the production side, we'll actually get, you know, strains full panel tested so that we get full chirp testing back um, in the COAs prior to it going into production. And that helps us inform, hey, take 75% of this and 25% of that and blend it together for our fast times. Sometimes it's one strain that comes back and we're like, that's the perfect profile. Like, let's just do a single strain this production run. Of course, we'll always list the strains. We'll list the turf profiles on our labels for consumers that do care about that. How much added challenge does that create for managing your supply chain? because <laughs> i was like i've been there i was like that sounds really tough <laughs> so yeah. i give you i give you but mad, also awesome but just hard <laughs> <laughs> well also it's like just the freaking space that we live that we work in of just needing a supply chain in every single state it just is damn but ultimately you know we have a chief product officer her name is tiana ariaga um, she has 20 plus year career in the cannabis space. Prior, she was SVP of business development and product ops at Papa and Barkley, where she really created and led uh, their development of their Papa Select line, which was the really high end um, line, which is like her passion is hash, solventless, all of that stuff. So she's re- she is like a turp queen. So really like knows uh, her shit as it relates to strains and genetics and, and terp profiles. Um, so she's on it. She's really, she works very, very closely with our supply chain partners and, you know, they have a really good flow of sending over COAs. She'll review them, approve things, move things around. So yeah, we're, we got a, we got a good flow going on now. One of the the beautiful challenges of cannabis is that you can't just produce in one place and distribute it across all of the states you are, which that would be, be nice. 
wonderful for all. But for your case, you're having to work and vet these individual vendors specifically for for the requests of Ms. Grass, which are challenging because cannabis doesn't ever grow the same right in different states and all those different variables, which kind of just compounds the problem. So has there ever been a state where you couldn't nail a certain blend right away and had to alter it? Or was there a different product you were looking to create and you just couldn't nail the consistent aspect of getting those terpene rich combinations together? Never that we launched and couldn't figure out. We've we've explored states before and and production partners and decided it's not the time for us to launch in this state because the flower quality isn't there. They don't have enough strain diversity for us. But ultimately, like when we're live and we're in production, like at that point, all of that diligence has already happened. Um, so we do know that, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the product for us. We're actually now even getting to a point where we're bringing over our own genetics to a lot of our states. So that'll be kind of the next evolution for Miss Grass. It's really building equity around some of our, our genetics. Because it's one thing to want to be in that state, right? And then you have to then layer on top of it, like the need for a consistent brand, especially one of yours who has the type of traction is because there's an expectation. So like, that's the other layers of cannabis. I think sometimes just don't people understand is that you you may want to be in New York, but if you aren't able to find that right production partner to adhere to that standard, you're then left in a very difficult kind of situation of like, which way do we totally. go? Yeah, New York is a great example. We, you know, explored the state. We wanted to be one of the earliest brands. And, you know, frankly, we are one of the earliest established brands in the market. We just launched last week, but early days. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. We got to get you to the East Coast. (laughs) Early days, we were exploring it. And ultimately, we didn't feel like the flower quality coming out of New York was quite there yet. And, And now we're actually sourcing from the very few like greenhouse operational facilities in the state so that we just, we knew that, and I am, I love outdoor, um, especially there's some like Cali outdoor that I'm just like, so good, so turp rich, so no shade with the outdoor producers here. Um, however, I haven't seen like incredible product coming out of the first year's harvest. And ultimately, you know, it is coming it was harvested last October. So that was something we knew, you know, we, we didn't want to launch in this market without fresh product. Um, so that ultimately informed the like timing of our launch and, and who we partnered with so that we can have, uh, you know, consistent harvest every like two and a half to three months so that ultimately our product will be fresh here. Is there a state that uh, operates smoother than the rest for you? And you're kind of like, God, I wish the other states would operate like X. It's, cannabis, I I it's, so, it's a leading question. It's leading. <laughs> Just say California, <laughs> Kellen. <laughs> no, you can't say California. I know, right? Like, that's why I was like, what are you going to say? Oregon, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really good question. And honestly, I'd say Jersey. And I know I'm a Jersey girl, but Jersey is a really really good market right now it's and i'm not the only one that says that just the way that it came out obviously you can point to things that states you know did wrong in every single state like there's there's for optimization everywhere but 
New Jersey is a good market. The operators who are operating right now, you know, the economics along the supply chain makes sense. You know, it feels like it's regulated in terms of the flow of the people coming online where like New York was like, go, no, wait, stop, wait, go. And then it's just been so messy here. So yeah, I'd say Jersey. Love it. Look, is there any plans to make a Mr. Grass and then do a pairing of Mrs. and Mr. Grass in a, in a package? I cannot tell you. How many people ask me that question? I literally, throughout this journey, I have been asked that so many times. Uh, honestly, to the point where one day, going back to my GoDaddy, I went to see, hey, is Mr. Grass available? And it isn't. It's a lawn mowing company that owns Mr. Grass. Selfish. Um, yeah. So I'm going to let that keep thriving and stick to Miss Grass. Are there any potential collaborations or partnerships on the horizon for Miss Grass, especially with other women-led brands and initiatives? Great question. Nothing that I can announce, but we are a very, very, very big partnership company. Um, it's how we really scaled our community. Probably most recently, we partnered with a woman, Jasmine Manns, and her company, Buy Weed for Women. Um, over last Women's Month, we uh, launched a custom collab tote. So more things like that will be on the horizon for sure. So you guys just launched in New York. Where are you now focusing most of your energy? Is it mostly on just stabilizing New York? Is it kind of looking at the next uh, state? Like talk us through like what you're doing and how you're uh, focusing your resources right now. Yeah, it's a constant um, question internally of like going deeper versus wider. And it'll be the the answer that ultimately we're doing right now is like a little bit of both. Um, However, we do feel we're in really strong markets and there will, you know, there still will be a few that we want to turn on because we have a really strong community base there. And obviously, you know, the market economics and the business opportunity needs to be there to justify getting into a state as well. And we do, you know, have on our horizon a a couple more states, including one that we will launch in December. However, next year, we will focus a lot too on going deeper in our states with the expansion of our product line. The majority of our states, we have our Miss Grass mini packs, um, which are, you know, three SKUs. So bringing some of the SKUs that we have in the California market over to the East Coast states, as well as some of the development that we're doing, um, I referenced to before and and some other things that we'll be launching as well. The state that you're expanding to in December, which maybe you you can share with us, can you talk about how long it takes to start the process to get to the point in December where you feel like you can launch? Yeah, so we'll be launching the Arizona market. Um, nice. You heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> baby. <Breaking news. laughs> and yeah, I mean, honestly, it starts with us. We have an internal scorecard with the majority of the states, including states that we know like are not at all on our radar. But um, that scorecard, and it's somewhat of an, an evolving thing, is we rate the states of that we want to get in, and there are certain metrics that we that we put against them. Um, Arizona has been a state that has been on our radar that we have a strong community base in. Market is is somewhat stable in cannabis terms. And, you know, typically we actually look to get into states on the earlier side of adult use. This wouldn't be the case in the Arizona market. Um, however, we've, you know, explored multiple supply chain partners there and 
it was the right time and with the right group. We're partnering with Sonoran Roots. If you're familiar with them, they have the best flower in the state, in my opinion, but not just mine. I think a lot of people would say that. Um, so it was, you know, the right partner, the right deal, and ultimately the right time too, from a bandwidth perspective on our end. Just we're a small but mighty team. Um, so we, you know, space out our state launches so that we're, you know, we can make sure that we ultimately go in and run the playbook and, you know, can execute and, and perform in all of our markets. So you, when you guys go into, uh, or you girls, sorry, go into a state, um, is it just focusing on the, like the main product skew and then you expand from there? Or is it kind of like tailored to each state where you're like, hey, we know that this state, they consumers tend to prefer XYZ. So we want to go in there with XYZ. Or kind of talk us through how you strategically decide what product lines you're going to start with in those states. Yeah, great question. And we have kind of our product playbook. Um, and depending on the state, it evolves. So to give you an example, you know, in like a really nascent market, as you know, like solventless and some of the the you know infusions that we have in other markets, like one aren't available or like the market isn't quite there yet. So like consumer bases are still just buying distillate or diamond infused or whatever it may be. So a little bit is like looking at the market and seeing like what exists and the production capabilities in the market. And then for us, we we do tend to at least to date always launch with our Missgrass minis. It's our hero skew right now. So we go in, it's the one that like our community knows, loves, always asks for. So we start there, work out the kinks as there always are, and then we'll look to launch subsequent products. And those subsequent products will depend on where that market is and, and consumer is. What's the most expensive lesson you've ever learned? Good question. AR, how important it is to collect money from people before they go bankrupt and then you have to write it off as bad debt. So I would say... We learned that sadly the hard way last year in the California market. And now we are very focused on collections. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Ah, Marley, Rihanna, Martin Luther King. Damn, that would be quite a session. (laughs) (laughs) If you could put anything on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get a message to billions of people, could be an image, quote, word, or something that inspired you. What comes to mind? I mean, I guess in the words of Snoop, like smoke weed every day. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if you had to do another startup not in your area of expertise in the cannabis industry? Oh my God, I live under a cannabis plant. I can't think of anything beyond cannabis. Um, yeah, I mean, I I love business and the idea of creating something. So not to say I wouldn't be another founder in another life or in the future. Um, but I don't see myself being a founder of something that I don't have a extreme passion for. So it would need to be another, you know, big like passion, passion of mine, um, which to be honest right now, I don't have a lot of passions outside of cannabis and business and friendships and family. Um, so maybe if cannabis wasn't in my life, something else would, would come in. We're sitting here one year from now. What have you accomplished? A lot of scale. I mean, we've scaled the business now 250 to 300% year over year. So we want to keep that going. Um, We want to be in a position 
you know, ultimately we are building this from a, we want this to be a, a good financial outcome for everyone involved um, internally and people externally that are involved in our business. So continuing to scale, but in a very good business way, you know, like running a profitable business and, you know, not scaling in the way that we've seen a lot of other, you know, companies in the space scale. When you got started in the cannabis industry, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Well, I do think that there still is such a need for a brand and there's, there's, you know, a handful of us that are serving a community based, particularly women who have been underserved historically in this space and even today. So, you know, that was a an idea and, and so, a need I I identified back in 2008 that I still think today is is absolutely correct and still needed. So I would say that is something that I got right. Um, something that I got wrong was just the timing. You know, I when we first launched, I expected even just from a federal legalization and movement perspective so much more to have happened I feel like i you know we launched january 2018 i said oh better we're three to five years out from federal legalization and i'm like still saying five years out today so i would say yeah i definitely got the timing of this wrong the crystal ball always looks weird looking back you're like 2024 for sure. Yeah, literally. It's <laughs> like, like we literally had conversations about predicting it. <laughs> Someone has said 2024. Me, me like, a bunch of times. <laughs> I wasn't going to say. I wasn't going to say like that. But we're going to scrub all those real quick. <laughs> all right. You can edit those episodes. Oh, so I, got one, I got one more quick question before we go to predictions. Go for it. Um, have you ever considered taking just hemp flour and selling it nationally with your like uh, in your pre-rolls? Yeah, great question. And uh, we used to actually have hemp and herb minis. So the, a version of that uh, using other like botanical herbs yeah. mixed with um, that was rich in CBD. And they did quite well. It, we, it was mainly a, you know, a D to C play. So we sold it through our e-com site and scaling an e-com, you know, marketplace and scaling wholesale into retail are somewhat like two completely different business models. So in the spirit of like, be focused, everyone, like, let's do really well, then like a bunch of things somewhat well, we decided to sunset that line. However, now with obviously everything that we're seeing in particular more in like the beverage and the manufactured space with, with um, hemp derived THC, I've started to like think through it again. Ultimately, if we had a product that translated more into that space, so not inhalable, that, you know, you could make kind of like down to the, you know, specific compounds, almost exactly the same, if not like exactly the same, it would be something that I would more seriously entertain. But right now, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're mainly focused on the, you know, cannabis THC side. I like it. I was just curious because I was like, yeah. you know, <laughs> it, it fits, oh, really? especially with that 90,000 person email list. I mean, yeah, that that's how I was like, damn. That is, <laughs> that is an asset that I don't think people. Bigger now, too. Bigger than 90,000. Let's go. Yeah. That's not, that's not cheap to, to hold from a month to month basis. Like that is a real asset, too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Kate, prediction time. No, oh, I love this. <laughs> What's the next big trend in the cannabis industry, especially in relation to female customers? I mean, not just related to females, but them is it, them in particular too. Just the evolution of this space where brands are driving more and more and more value and 
us starting to really see really valuable brands that have true brand equity and loyalty. Um, I think, you know, several years ago, we haven't really saw, we didn't see as much of that because ultimately if you own the shelf space, consumers are buying whatever they can buy. And now we're definitely seeing, you know, the rise of and the shift to more and more brand value. Love it. Kellen. I'm going to say you're going to see a huge shift in just cultural stigma, right? I think right now when like the general American thinks of quote unquote, someone who consumes cannabis on a daily basis, they kind of have an image of like a middle-aged white male who's like a stoner in essence, right? And I think that slowly it'll change over to be more of like, an accepted kind of thing where you think of alcohol and, you know, you can think of people in a dive bar drinking beer, but you can also think of a group of ladies sitting at brunch drinking champagne, right? And so both of those images come up simultaneously. And so I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see this um, transition, at least in the minds of most Americans, away from stereotyping someone who consumes cannabis, as I previously just uh, described, to someone who kind of fits the more mainstream everyday kind of person. Um, I think that's, that's my guess. What do you think, Brian? I think those are really well said, especially from the alcohol relation. I think there's a lot of people out there who lean on alcohol as their relaxing, what's called a quote unquote drug. And I think they've had an experience in a relationship with cannabis prior and they're, they're intrigued. They're not sure of getting started. And it takes kind of the slow stigma replacing in order for that individual in my mind to see a brand that connects with them, to have that experience that they can do again, and then to feel slowly comfortable trusting cannabis over time. But I think it starts with education and messaging and that repeatable experience, exactly like you said, Kate. And I think that's the type of steps that are necessary for a mass adoption for likely the most influential category, which is the women, which is, like you said, the fastest growing segment. And it's exciting to see some of my friends in particular who those females who who don't consume cannabis anymore look to, to add that back into the repertoire and not and not associate it with exactly like Kellen said, like a, a white mm-hmm. man who just assumes cannabis is the stoner on the couch. So, Kate, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy Miss Crass products. Where can they find you? Probably easiest way. Go to our site, MissCrass.com. We have a stockist page that's always updated. So um, that's probably the easiest way to find, you know, the, the available stores. We are in California, uh, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. Awesome. We'll link it on the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Thank you so much. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. 
So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.